0: If you want a deeper relationship with God, then learn to trust His promises. The Promise Code by O.S. Hawkins will help you understand how to count on God's promises, and it's yours with a gift of any amount to turning point this month. When you give $60 or more, you'll receive the Promise Code set, which includes Esther's CD album, study guide, historical chart, and Bible Promises at a Glance booklet. Learn more and donate when you go to davidjeremiah.ca.
1: Writers are taught to never introduce a new character late in the story, especially not the title character. Thankfully, God isn't subject to such conventions. Today on Turning Point, Dr. David Jeremiah details Esther's late arrival in her story and how it demonstrates the perfect nature of God's timing. From the series, Esther, for such a time as this, here's David with today's message, Esther Becomes Queen. Well, we're just getting started with this story, so if
2: you've joined us for the first time in March, you've only missed a couple of lessons, and uh, you're ready to join us as we put Esther on the throne. She's about to become the queen. Esther chapter 2, we'll get to it in a moment. I'm sure you've had the experience, as I have had over the years, of having someone make a promise to you and then not keep it. Sometimes people wonder if they can really trust the promises of God. Absolutely, because of his unwavering character and the declaration in Hebrews that says it is impossible for God to lie. His word is his bond, and when God makes a promise, he keeps it. That's why we're so excited about The Promise Code, a book by O.S. Hawkins with 40 Bible Promises Every Believer Should Claim. This beautiful gift book is in the genre of the other O.S. Hawkins books that we have made available. They're called The Code Books, and you probably have one or two of them. This is the new one, and we're so happy to make it available to all of our Turning Point friends. O.S. Hawkins has done us all a big favor by making this so uh, inviting when you put this in your hands, it's beautifully designed. you just want to open it up and find out what's inside, and when you do that, that's the best part of all. Here are the promises of God that you can trust. It's impossible for God to lie. He keeps his word. He never outpromises himself. This is yours for the asking when you send a gift to turning point during this month. Your gift enables us to continue teaching the Bible around the world. We're so grateful for your investment in what we do, and we want to say thank you with this gift for the month of March. Well, let's begin. Our lesson today is about Esther becoming queen. We're opening our Bibles to the second chapter of the book that bears her name.
3: The book of Esther, as we learned when we opened to it the first time, is a very unique book because it is a book that does not contain the name of God one time. And yet, if you read the book and understand what's happening in the story, God is on every page. He is everywhere present as you see the drama unfolding. It is wonderful to me that we're studying this book at such a time as this because it is reminding me again that God has always had a people and that He has always seen fit to make sure that His people are protected from the attacks of those who would annihilate them. The book of Esther is about the mighty provision of the Lord God in positioning one of his people in a strategic place so that when an evil man wished to annihilate the Jews, that very special person would be there to stem the tide of the attack. In the first chapter, we learned about the king, the Ahasuerus, if you will. He was a man by the name of Xerxes a very vain and a very impulsive man. And at the end of the chapter, as you know, he has divorced his wife, a woman by the name of Vashti, because she was more noble than he. She refused to be used as a plaything by all of his friends and would not be summoned to a drunken party which he was conducting in order to sell all of his political allies on the upcoming war he wished to wage against Greece. When Vashti said she would not come, she did something that is just not done in royal circles, and she was banished, she was divorced, and as we open our Bibles to chapter 2, we discover that it is a thing that was later regretted by Xerxes, the Ahasuerus of Persia. We need to understand that a great deal of time has transpired since the end of chapter one. In fact, probability is that as much as four years has taken place between the end of chapter one and the beginning of chapter two, with the setting aside of Queen Vashti, we have to turn to secular history to find out what happened in between the end of chapter one and the beginning of chapter two. Chapter two opens with, after these things, what things? Well, after Vashti the queen had been set aside, we are told in secular history that Xerxes carried on his campaign in Greece, and he was miserably defeated, and his entire fleet was destroyed in the Adriatic Sea. And when he returned to his summer palace in Shushan, where he began all of this, he was plunged into excesses and despair. He was trying to drown his sorrows and his hardships. He was in egocentric man who had lost a major war upon which he had set his heart, and he returned back to the palace hoping that he would find someone who could assuage his grief and cheer him up. He returned only to realize that he himself had been responsible for divorcing the one person who had been able to cheer him up in the past, his wife Vashti. And we read then in the second chapter, verse 1, After these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus was appeased, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what was decreed against her. And then said the king's servant that ministered unto him, Let there be fair young virgins sought for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather together all the fair young virgins unto Shushan the palace, to the house of the women, unto the custody of Hege the king's chamberlain, keeper of the women, and let their things for purification be given them. And let the maiden which pleaseth the king be queen instead of Vashti, and the thing pleased the king, and he did so. The first thing you notice in verses 1 through 4 is... There is a tremendous insistence on the part of those who are in the kingdom that there be now selected a new queen. At this point, as we pick up the record in God's word, the king is brooding over his lost war and his loss of Vashti. And you can tell by reading the first couple of verses that there's almost a tang of remorse in what he says. When his men, his assistants, realize how sad he is, and that it is not possible to go and bring Vashti back because you've probably heard of the laws of the Medes and Persians. The laws of the Medes and Persians could not be countermanded. He had made a decree, and it was undoable. There was absolutely nothing he could do to change that. His servants knew it, and they decided that the only way they could cheer up their king, the only way they could restore order to the palace, was to conduct a national beauty contest and select a new queen. It was very organized, and the idea greatly pleased King Xerxes. In fact, it says at the end of verse 4, the thing pleased the king. Now, to search for a new queen, the Persians extended to the remotest corners of the empire. Elaborate machinery was set up so that no possible candidate would be ignored. The ministers of Ahasuerus suggested that the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom, and that they gather together all of the fair young virgins under Shushan the palace, and that they place all of these young women in the house of women, unto the custody of Hagee, the king's chamberlain. Now, the house of women was simply a place where the king's harem was kept. And so they were to bring all of these beautiful women and put them in this beautiful compound, and they were to be administrated by Hegi as they ran for queen for today. They wanted to find out whether or not they were going to be acceptable to the king. The house of women is a common expression in Oriental literature And we would simply refer to it as the place where the harem was kept. Now, as we read the first four verses, we still do not have any word of Esther. Let me just remind you again that up until verse 4 of chapter 2, the woman after whom this book is named has not really been inserted into the story at all. It is interesting to me that all of this information we've studied so far is simply the preparation that the Lord has allowed so that when Esther comes to the kingdom, she will be there at exactly the right moment so she can fit into the plan that ultimately will be God's method of saving the Jewish people. In verses 5 through 7, we see the insertion of Mordecai and Esther into the scene. Notice first of all what it says in verses 5 and 6 about Mordecai. Notice. Now in Shushan the palace, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jar, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity which had been carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. In Shushan the palace was this man, who had been brought to Babylon before the Persians had taken over the kingdom. And his name, Mordecai, was significant because he had been taken out of Jerusalem under one of the sieges of Nebuchadnezzar. According to Second Chronicles chapter 36, there were three different deportations of Jews under Nebuchadnezzar from Jerusalem. The first came in the days of a king whose name was Jehoiakim, the second in the days of a king whose name was Jehoiachin, and the third in the days of a king named Zedekiah. No doubt the Jeconiah referred to here in Esther chapter 2 is the same as Jehoiachin who was carried away captive in 597 B.C. If Mordecai was among those carried away at that time, he would have been a very, very old man. And we do not have reason to believe by reading this story that he was quite that old. Most scholars have assumed, then, that the reference to being carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity at the beginning of verse 6 is a reference to Kish, who was the grandfather of Mordecai, so that Mordecai would have been a grandson and probably a relatively young man during the time that this story unfolds. One of the questions that you have to ask if you read the story carefully is, why was Mordecai not back in Palestine? You remember, they had been under captivity because of their wickedness, but there had come a time when Ezra had been allowed to go back and rebuild the walls of the temple, and somewhere between thirty and 50,000 Jewish people were released from Babylon to go back to Jerusalem. But when we read this story, this young Jew hasn't gone back. He's still here. He has decided, apparently, that living under the pagan culture of the Babylonians and the Persians is not all as bad as some people might think it might be. And many Bible scholars believe that his presence there at this particular time reflects the fact that he is not in the will of God, that he has not followed the opportunity that was presented to him to return to the land of his birth. God often uses even our disobedience as a part of his plan, although he never allows us to revel in our disobedience. Even the wrath of men please God on occasion. So here is Mordecai, out of the will of God perhaps, still there in Shushan the palace, and he is going to now find his place in the unfolding story of the book of Esther. In verse 7 of chapter 2, we meet the next major player, and that is the woman herself. And we're told in verse 7 that Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is, Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother, and the maid was fair and beautiful, whom Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took for his own daughter. It is quite evident that Mordecai was a kindly man, for he brought up Hadassah, that is the other name for Esther, and this girl was his uncle's daughter. She had neither father nor mother, and she was fair and beautiful, says the scripture, and Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took this young girl into his own home and raised her as his own daughter. The fact that Esther has two names reminds me of Daniel and all of those who were deported with him. Most scholars believe that the name Esther originally was related to a Babylonian deity named Ishtar. Frankly, it's the word from which we get our word Easter. If you knew the background of the word Easter, you would be mortified that we even use it today in our language. It comes from a pagan Babylonian deity and it is the fertility cult of the mother and child, and it has continued to be a part of our culture today, and we've gone way past that, and now we understand Easter to be something that relates to the Lord Jesus, and so be it. But Esther's name that she is given here was probably given to her by the pagan Babylonians and Persians, and her name Hadassah was a beautiful name which means myrtle. It is a beautiful, wonderful name. The name Esther is her name by which she is known, but the name Hadassah is the right name for her if you look at her as a godly woman. Now, as we begin to read verse 8, Esther is about to be introduced into the king's house. Notice what happens. So it came to pass when the king's commandment and his decree was heard, and when many maidens were gathered together unto Shushan the palace to the custody of Haggai, that Esther was brought also unto the king's house to the custody of Haggai, keeper of the women. Now, it came to pass, according to the scripture, that Esther was brought. Was she brought against her will? Did she come willingly to be a part of this beauty contest? Most who have studied it carefully have questioned that. The probability is that she was brought against her will and made a part of the beauty pageant that was to unfold. And she was placed in the custody of this Haggai, who is the same man who is mentioned as H-E-G-E back in verse 3. And we read in verse 9 that the plan of God is now beginning to kick in. For in verse 9 we're told that the maiden, Esther, pleased Haggai, and she obtained kindness of him, and he speedily gave her things for purification, with such things as belonged to her, and seven maidens, which were meet to be given her, out of the king's house, and he preferred her and her maids unto the best place of the house of the women. When we are told that she found favor in the eyes of Haggai, the keeper of the women, it should not surprise us, because God is working all of this out behind the scenes, and all of this is a part of his divine plan. The Bible says that Haggai gave her speedily her things for purification. These portions probably included her food and her other necessities. In other words, from now on, she would be supported by the king, which would be little enough in comparison to all that she had to sacrifice. The seven maidens which were given to her out of the king's house were appointed to attend her in rotation, one for every day of the week. Now, as a mark of the high esteem that the keeper of the women had for Esther, we're told he preferred her and her maids unto the best place of the house of the women. If you look at that carefully, for instance, the ASV translates that this way. He removed her which seems to imply that when she found favor in the eyes of this keeper of the women, he decided to remove her from the place where the rest of the girls were housed because apparently it must not have been a very nice place. And he provided special quarters for Esther, which became hers alone. And in this way, you see again the evidence of God's provision for Esther while she is awaiting the exact timing that will unfold. And the scripture tells us in verse 10 that all during this time she was purposefully secretive as to her Jewish identity. Notice, Esther had not showed her people nor her kindred, for Mordecai had charged her that she should not show it. Perhaps if we knew all the circumstances, we might understand this better. It is quite possible, of course, that the primary purpose In This hiding of her identity was to protect her from violence. Perhaps there was already among the Persians an aversion to the Jewish people. We may be sure that she was not preferred or taken to the best place of the house of the women without provoking a great deal of jealousy on the part of the other girls. You can well imagine that if she was given special treatment out of all of these girls who were vying for the opportunity to be auditioned as the new queen and they saw Esther getting the upper hand in all of this, that she would not be one of the most popular people among the women of the day. When Mordecai brought Esther to be entered in the contest, he instructed her in detail not to let it be known that she was a Jewess. Whether this was sinful or not could be debated. Some have said that this was tantamount to her rejection and denial of her religion. Seems quite obvious to me that had she told them who she was, the contest would have been over before it ever started. God knew what he was doing and he allowed this to happen. So, she now is in this place where she is going to be put into the rotation and ultimately taken and auditioned by the king. There's an interesting sidelight in verse 11 about the loving and caring person who had watched over her since she was a tiny girl. Notice what it says in verse 11. And Mordecai walked every day before the court of the women's house to know how Esther did and what should become of her. I visualize the man realizing that he has put this young girl in a place of danger that he has put her in a place where he no longer is able to care for her needs. and While he has done this, apparently under his understanding of the purpose and will of God, he cannot ever for a day not think of her and wonder how she's doing. Some have even suggested that the fact that he had access to this home, this house where the women were kept, is significant that he may have been involved in the Persian government to some degree. In fact, there's another passage that talks of him as being seated in the gate, which would be a place where a judge might be. So Mordecai was on the inside. He had the opportunity to move freely about the kingdom. And I can see him every day as he just sort of happens to walk by the house of the women and wants to check out Esther and see how she's doing and see if her needs have been met and if she is all right. You see Mordecai and Esther gradually being inserted into the story. Esther is introduced into the king's knowledge by becoming a part of the many women who were involved in the house of women. Some have suggested there could have been as many as 400 women in this contest who had been gathered from all the provinces of Persia. Now, in verses 12 through 15, we have the rules of the beauty contest, and it's very interesting what is to happen. Now, When every maid's turn was come to go into King Ahasuerus, after that she had been twelve months according to the manner of the women, for so were the days of their purifications to accomplish to wit, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with sweet odors and with other things for the purifying of the women. Then thus came every maiden unto the king, whatsoever she desired was given her to go with her out of the house of the women unto the king's house." Now, this is an astounding thing because what this tells us is that all of these women who are entered in this beauty contest have one entire year of preparation before the moment of their audience with the king. When it says here that these are months of purification, this is not so much ceremonial as it is actually a matter of hygiene and cleanliness. It is a matter of the beautification practices of the day. They were given 12 months to go to beauty school. Twelve months to learn how to sharpen all of their charms. Twelve months to learn how to make themselves as seductive as possible and as charming as possible so they would have the best possible opportunity to attract the king's attention. Very interesting that six months were spent with oil of myrrh, it says. Myrrh served a double purpose in that it was not only fragrant, it is also credited with having purifying powers. The Bible says that in addition to the use of myrrhs in the beautification and purification of the women, there was also sweet odors and other things for the purifying of the women. And we don't know any more about this except what we can learn from the heathen culture. It was simply a part of learning how to present themselves to the king and give themselves the very best possibility of being chosen as his new wife.
2: So the intrigue of the story continues and um... It's getting more complicated and yet more exciting and more interesting. The stories of the Bible kind of leave you on the edge of your seat if you read them consecutively, reading the story from the beginning to the end. We're taking it one step at a time, one chapter at a time, one little paragraph at a time, and we're in the middle of this lesson which is entitled Esther Becomes Queen. Tomorrow, part two of that lesson. I hope you'll join us then been telling you a lot about what's going on at Turning Point. We have had an amazing year behind us with a new movie and A lot of uh, new opportunities that God has given us, and now we're settling into this year of 2023, and uh, we don't always have any rallies in the spring, but this year we're going to have one, one major rally in Boise, Idaho. We decided to go someplace we'd never been before, and we have a lot of friends in that area who've been encouraging us to come. So we're going to be at the Extra Mile Arena on April the 20th with all of our team, all of the rally, um, production that we do, and we sure hope that you will come. We know some people that are going to fly into Boise to go to the event and then stay and enjoy the the country. That's a good idea. We have a lot of people that live there who used to come to church here at Shadow Mountain. They moved out of California and went to Idaho. And they all tell me how beautiful it is. We've been to a couple of places there, and I can assure you, you won't be disappointed. And we're going to have a great night in Boise, Idaho on the 20th of April. And of course, in July, we're headed to Alaska for our annual conference crews there this year with james brown and tony dungy as our special guest my son daniel from the nfl network will interview them on one of the night sessions and we're going to have a great time together look us up on the internet and come and join us we hope you'll do that
1: we'll see you tomorrow for more information on dr jeremiah's series esther for such a time as this Please visit our website. There you'll also find two free ways to help you stay connected. Our monthly magazine, Turning Points, and our daily email devotional. Sign up today at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. Or call us at 800-946-4300. Ask for your copy of the latest book from leader and author O.S. Hawkins, The Promise Code, 40 Bible Promises Every Believer Should Claim. It's yours for a gift of any amount. You can also purchase the Jeremiah Study Bible in the English Standard, New International, and New King James Versions, available in a variety of attractive cover options. Get all the details when you visit our website, davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us tomorrow as we continue Esther for Such a Time as This on Turning Point with Dr. David Jeremiah.
2: You have likely heard the serenity prayer, usually attributed to theologian Reinhold Niebuhr. The prayer asks God to grant serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. It's a prayer for three things, serenity, courage, and wisdom. But which of the three is most important? Wisdom is, of course, for without wisdom, we won't know whether a situation is one we can change or not, and we won't know whether we need serenity or courage. Spiritual wisdom or discernment may be the most needed ability in the life of the modern church, and the most lacking as well. This is David Jeremiah, encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Discover God's discernment on Route 66.
3: Route 66, driving the word home. Log on to route66life.com. Start your journey home today.